Good morning to you all. Welcome. Uh, there are handouts on the back table, so you want to grab those as you make your way in for Sunday school. We're continuing our series of looking at uh, a variety of psalms this summer, and I have the privilege of introducing Kelly Batiste to you. He and his wife Rachel have been here at our church for six, seven years or so, um, and just real dear couple, precious friends to me and my family, and incredible gracious servants of the church. Kelly serves on our deacon board and uh, is, is very, they're both very involved in shepherding and service. They've moved probably about half the church and uh, just are, are, are servants in a variety of ways. And so it's a joy to, to hear teaching from all these men, but especially as they get equipped in teaching, to hear teaching that comes from hearts and lives like Pastor Rick is preaching that align with the worthiness of, of the gospel and the calling that God calls us to. And so if you would, why don't you help me welcome Kelly Batiste. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Aaron, thank you for that introduction. I'm not sure I uh, deserve that, but I definitely appreciate it. Um, it's really an honor to be with you all this morning and to uh, work through God's Word with you. I hope you all have been as blessed as I have been as we've gone through the summer in the Psalms. Um, it's been a delight for me and my heart, I know, and Thinking back to, I think, early June, maybe June 5th, when Myrel gave us a, a great introduction to the Psalms, and we've had uh, men teach since. And so I'd really encourage you, if you didn't hear Myrel's introduction, to go back and listen to that. I think it's incredibly helpful as we look at the Psalms and, and the other men's uh, work through the Psalms. Uh, it's, been, it's been really good. So hopefully you got a handout. Uh, as you can see there, we're going to look at Psalm uh, 95 this morning. So Psalm 95, if you'll start to turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 95 is, is a call to worship, and it's a call to heed the warnings of rebellion. And really throughout the history of the, of the Christian church, this psalm has widely been used as a call and a guide to worship. The psalm summons those seeing it to learn the lesson of rebellion from a previous generation and really ask that they commit themselves to hearing and obeying the Lord. The psalm calls us today to hear and obey as well. It's a serious psalm with serious warnings. It really has a bluntness to it about the heart and how true worship and true obedience really go hand in glove. So in essence, Psalm 95 says this, you can't truly worship without obedience, and true obedience leads to worship. So with that in mind, this morning we will look at two imperatives for God's people. That's two imperatives for God's people. Listen to Psalm 95. It says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. <clears throat> for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. 
The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. So in Psalm 95, we're going to look at, in verses 1 to the first part of verse 7, we see a command to praise the Lord, while the second part of verse 7 through the end of the psalm in verse 11, we will see a command to obey the Lord. So let's dig in this morning by looking at the call to praise in verses 1 and 2. And again, it says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So this exhortation begins with, O come, followed by let us sing for joy, which Another way to say that could be sing with a ringing cry, so cry out. This is an urging for for joyful praise. And we see let us repeated four times here in this call to worship. Let us sing, let us shout, let us come, and again let us shout. The parallel verb in the second part of both verses 1 and 2 is let us shout joyfully. And, and really the way it reads in our English translations is really too calm. Both verbs call for really loud, enthusiastic, joyful praise to be given to the Lord. And the description of the Lord in the verse provides the initial reason for the praise. And, and that is that he is the, the rock of our salvation. You all are very familiar with the metaphor rock, and it's very frequently used in the book of Psalms. And it emphasizes that the Lord is the solid foundation of the faith. He is our firm foundation, which provides safety and and security and stability for those who trust in him. The qualifying word, our salvation, uh, according to commentators, could be attributive meaning our saving rock or the rock that is our salvation, but is more likely objective here, referring to the Lord as the rock saved us. This means that the people who are being called to praise are recipients of his grace. They are the redeemed, not just in the sense of being delivered from enemies or exile, although that may be part of it, but those who have been brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord. See, starting in verse 2, the worshiper is reminded that coming into the presence of the Lord requires thanksgiving 
for that privilege. Thanksgiving for the privilege of being able to come into his sanctuary. We know that coming into his presence is a gift worthy of thanksgiving. Let me pause for a second this morning and ask if, if, if we think about this today. Do we come with thank, thankfulness in our hearts for this privilege of worshiping together? I know I can be very forgetful to do so. And at maybe my own peril, I wanted to share my typical Saturday evening, Sunday morning thought process with you guys. Sometimes it goes like this on Saturday nights. We've got to make sure we get up early because we need to get the first service because that's where the more godly people attend. <laughs> and then we get to church and I'm thinking, do I, do I have my coffee? Oh, I forgot breakfast. Oh, well. I wonder where we're going to go for lunch. And then it moves on to, what am I going to do Sunday afternoon? Should I take a nap? Uh, maybe that's lazy. Should I work out? No, it's a day of rest. And then, and then oh, oh, do we have care group tonight? And, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I, I guess the question is, is, is that normal? And, and can you guys relate with that? Um, okay, I, I think it's not normal, and maybe you can't relate, so thanks for that feedback. But um, there may be some that, you, that can't relate with that. So God is, is so gracious to remind us to be Thankful for this privilege. And then verse 2 then ends with the word psalms. So a song of thanksgiving. A song with shouts of joy. And, and so the idea is the people of God are called to praise. We are called to praise. And, and a commentator, Kidner, gives the following summary of these first two verses. And I think they're very helpful. He says, before making ourselves small before him, before the Lord, we greet him here with unashamed enthusiasm as our refuge and rescuer. The full-throated cries urged in the verbs of verses 1 and 2 suggest an acclamation fit for a king who is the savior of his people. Moving on to verses 3 through the first part of verse 7, we see the cause for praise. And that cause for praise is indeed a great God and a great king. And verse 3 is the summary statement here. And it says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And since he is king over all gods, he is the great God. There are none over him. The adjective great is used twice in the verse, emphasizing the Lord's superiority as God and as king over all gods. And the word itself would signify his majesty but when used to affirm his sovereignty over all gods, it stresses that nothing and no one compares. All the gods that the pagans worshipped were, after all, part of the Lord's creation. I mean, think about who they worshipped. It's not much different than what we see in our day. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. They worshipped the stars. They worshiped bodies of water, like rivers. They worshiped animals. And they worshiped forces of nature. Think of thunder and lightning and so forth. But the Lord is the great king over all that they worshiped. Because any gods they worshiped were part of his created dominion. 
And to worship the creature and not the creator is not only an insult to the living God, but it's also pointless. Verses 4 and 5 are, are formed as relative clauses to show the greatness of our God. And, and it starts with, in whose hands are the deep places of the earth? And deep places would be the remote and dangerous abysses of the earth and, and speak to the unexplored depths of the earth. But the figurative use of his hands signifies that these places and everything that happens in them are still in his, in his power. And I think Psalm 139 is, is very helpful here. So if you would flip, flip over to Psalm 139, <clears throat> we'll be starting to look there at verse 7. And, and two weeks ago, Ben Brown did a, did a great job teaching on this psalm. And so hopefully it's still somewhat fresh, fresh in your mind this morning. <clears throat> so Psalm 139, 7 through verse 12. And it says... Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And if I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So the clear picture is this. Our God is sovereign over everything. And as you flip back to Psalm 95, we will continue to see that. We see that the mention of the heights of the hills, that is the mountain peaks, is contrasted with the depths. So from the unexplored depths to the highest points on earth, this contrast again makes the point that everything is under his control. Then verse 5 adds that the sea also belongs to him because he made it. And this is paralleled with the statement that his hands formed the dry land. So everything is his because he made it. He is the creator. So the depths and the heights and the sea and the dry land and everything contained within them are all his and under his control because he created them. This is all encompassing. All of creation is his and under his control. So his great sovereignty demonstrated by his creation of the world and dominion over it would be reason enough to praise him. Alone, that's reason enough to praise him. He deserves praise for that but there's more. As we look forward into verses 6 and the first part of verse 7, these verses focus on the Lord's relationship with his people, a gracious provision of the sovereign Lord. And, and verse 6 begins with a call, and it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And the first verb here is the imperative. And it's parallel to the imperative in verse 1 where we see, O come. But that first invitation was a general exhortation. This is a specific invitation to enter. So true believers willingly do this. So this is more of a call to worship than a command to submit. An imperative is followed by three directives. 
And each of these directives having to do with bowing down before the Lord. The first translated, let us worship, basically has the idea of bowing oneself low to the ground, which is the, the proper and natural posture of the devout in the presence of our living God. The second verb, and let us bow down, ramps up the intensity with the aspect of reverence in our worship. And the third, let us kneel, adds to the growing intensity of the line and finally includes the object before the Lord, our maker. And this designation of the Lord as our maker could be referring to creation in general. But in this psalm, with its focus on the covenant relationship that people have with the Lord, it probably refers to the making of the nation. If it is taken as a reference to the forming of the nation, then it would have the idea of God's forming the people into a covenant community, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Listen to Exodus 19, 5 through 6. And it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Thus the psalmist affirms, for he is our God and we are, his, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. And, and just as everything else that God made is in his control, the people he formed into a nation are also in his powerful control. Simply put, he is their God. He is their God. And, and this is the covenant relationship. And the figures used, the metaphors here, emphasize that covenant relationship. The people are God's sheep, and, the, and his domain, the land of promise, is the pasture of the Lord. And elsewhere, elsewhere, Scripture makes this connection clear that the Lord is the shepherd of his people. And I know you all are very familiar with, with Psalm 23. So verse 7 seems to echo the, the covenant promise of God. When it says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the point of the section then is that the faithful are called to bow in his presence because he is their God. The one who graciously elected them to be his people and who cares for them like a shepherd. And now as we move through verse 7, through the first part of verse 7, through the second part, the psalm moves to the call for obedience or to obey the Lord. I think a commentator described this transition well when he said this, while it is right that God's people should rejoice in their king and his care, they must not forget that they have covenant responsibilities as well. So one can imagine the scene here of worshipers kneeling before the Lord in his temple, and being advised to respond properly to his voice. Now there is some, some question as to whether the second part of verse 7 should be connected to the first part of verse 7 and, and, and previous or to verse 8. And, and, and much time could be committed to that discussion this morning. But I think it fits best being connected to verse 8 and beyond. And, and one of the reasons for that is 
we'll see later that this is how the writer of Hebrews takes it when he quotes this, uh, starting in Hebrews 3, 7. So I think it fits better going with, with 8 and, and beyond. So as you look at the second part of verse 7, this, this section begins suddenly. It says, today, if you would hear his voice. And so his voice here refers to the oracle of the verses in 8 through 11, and it would mean this, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden. So the psalmist would be desiring that they would obey God's warning to avoid the sin of their ancestors. So the use of today expresses the urgency of his desire for their immediate obedience. There is no time to waste. It is urgent. And Kirkpatrick says that today is now, right now, while the door of opportunity lies open before you. And he adds that the reference is not to a particular incident in history, but any time the psalm is read. So there is urgency with each and every reading, even this morning. And in verses 8 through 11, we see it begins with, do not harden your heart. And in this context, the heart represents the will, and the image of hardening it would mean a stubborn refusal to obey the word of the Lord. So to be clear, this, this, isn't, this isn't ignorance or uncertainty over the meaning of the word, but rather it's a deliberate choice to refuse to obey God's instructions. And the illustration for this warning is as at Meribah, which literally means strife or contention. It is in the desert of sin because the Israelites murmured against God. And it goes on to say, as in the day of Massa, which literally means temptation or test, and is in the place in the wilderness where the Israelites tested God. So real quick, if you will turn over to Exodus 17 in your Bibles. Exodus 17, we're going to start in verse 2 there. So you can see where the Israelites tested God in the wilderness. So Exodus 17, starting in verse 2. And it says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? 
or not. So these names, Massa and Meribah, formed a perpetual reminder of the disobedience of Israel in the wilderness. Their complaint in the wilderness started with murmuring, but escalated to formal accusations and charges at Meribah. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So at Massa, they put God to the test. And the word test always being concerned with doubts and questions and demonstrating a very weak and doubting faith. So the point is they had God's word of promise and they had the experience of his miraculous provision but they still refused to trust him and challenged him instead. So verse nine then explains that in the wilderness, the ancestors put God to the test in unbelief. Although they saw his work, they'd seen it. They saw his miraculous work of deliverance and miraculous provision and still responded in unbelief. Moving on to verses 10 and 11, we see there where it's recorded the divine discipline of that generation. This is a discipline that was well known in the nation. It says, for 40 years, God loathed them. And this word loathe has been given various translations. Well, what it's getting at, what it speaks to is the outrage sense for what is shameful as opposed to what is right. And so disgusted is probably a better translation here. So for 40 years, God was disgusted with them. And the Lord said, they are a people erring in heart and they do not know my ways. And erring is literally wandering. So they are people who have wandered. They are people, they are people whose hearts have wandered from their God. <clears throat> and because of their waywardness and rebellion, the Lord swore an oath in his anger. And in this oath, God staked his reputation on its fulfillment. If the rebellious people entered the rest, then the Lord was not the great God. So this rest that's referred to here in the last verse is in the present context, the promised land of Canaan. And since the promised land was the Lord's, his oath prevented them from entering my rest. Only those who observed the covenant had the right to dwell in the Lord's inheritance and enjoy his rest. So although it refers to the land of inheritance, there is more to it than that. As the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, entering the land also meant receiving the blessing of God and enjoying the experience of his presence. And commentators note the term rest And the psalm does not immediately refer to spiritual salvation for many of the people who came out of Egypt were were surely believers. Think of Moses and and Aaron. Rather, rest is the full blessing of the promised inheritance in the land that they were denied because of their unbelief. And it's interesting that, as I said earlier, that this this section, this psalm, this section, the second part of verse 7 through 11 is quoted in Hebrews 3. So I'd ask you to turn to to Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7 there as well. So Hebrews Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. It says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the writer of Hebrews used the theme of rest for his parallel application. The term had a primary interest in the promised blessing land, the promised blessing of the land of Canaan in the psalm, but in the application in Hebrews, it has its greatest and fullest meaning of salvation and communion with God in the world to come. So the idea in either context is clear. Those who hear and obey God's word demonstrate that they are the people of God and will have a share in the promised inheritance to come. But those who do not respond properly to his word may not enter into that rest. So the instruction and warnings of Psalm 95 are serious. Every worshiper should be reminded of this warning from God based on the Israelites' lack of faith at Meribah and Massa. And Alan Ross has a great commentary on the Psalms and, and has a great summary of, of Psalm 95, which I couldn't improve on, so I'm going to quote him. And he sums up Psalm 95 this way. Believers must acknowledge the greatness and grace of the Lord, their maker, while taking heed to obey his word so as not to jeopardize their full participation in the promised inheritance. The New Testament time and time again confirms the divine imperatives to praise the Lord and to obey his word. So this morning as we consider this psalm, I have three takeaways to go over with you. Three takeaways this morning from Psalm 95. They're on the back of your, your handout. And the first takeaway is he is worthy. The Lord is worthy. We are called to praise with pure hearts, with lifted hands, to shout for joy and to kneel before our Lord, our maker. So question for you this morning is, do you believe he is worthy? And do you really believe he is worthy? I know, I know we say that and we talk about that, but do you really believe he is worthy? Let me tell you this morning that he is and, and the scripture proclaims this all throughout. And I have a couple for you this morning. So listen to Psalm 18.3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. And listen to Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and we're created. So he is worthy. He is worthy. So how do we respond to that? If you would flip over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at uh, verses 13 through 16. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit 
Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we should be intentional to confess and repent of our sin and to pursue holiness because he is holy and he is worthy of our praise. Our second takeaway this morning um, is to guard our hearts. And for those of you who are a little bit more godly and were at first service, you already heard a fantastic sermon in Ephesians 4. And this was a big part of that. And so for those who heard it, you know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, um, a great sermon awaits you uh, shortly. But we need to guard our hearts to ensure there's no hardness, no rebellion, no drifting, no complaining or murmuring against the Lord, no doubting or testing. So a question that came to my mind is how might we harden our hearts? How does that happen? Rick will say a lot about that again in the second hour, but Charles Spurgeon has a few suggested ways of how we might harden our hearts, and I think they're helpful for us to hear this morning. So here's this list. Here's a few of them. He says, some harden their hearts by resolving not to demonstrate emotion in regard to spiritual things. He says, some harden their hearts by delaying a real relationship with God. He says, some harden their hearts by pretending to doubt and with foolish criticism. Some harden their hearts by getting into evil company. Some harden their hearts by focusing on silly amusements all intended to kill time and prevent thought upon divine things. And some harden their hearts by indulging in a favorite sin. I think this list is worth considering. There's much more we could consider about how we harden our hearts. And again, Ephesians 4 is, is very helpful here as well, and, and, and Rick will be preaching that again. So just a quick story about um, a purchase we made back in September. We bought a uh, we bought a minivan. So we're back into the minivan life. So we, we've come full circle on minivans, just so you know. Um, we had them, we got rid of them, and we're back. And, and I'm okay with it. We like it, okay? So, but for the record, I also drive a truck. So just, just so you know. Um, but it's a newer minivan, right? So it has these new features, these new safety features. There's, there's all these safety features. So it has uh, uh, this thing called uh, lane keep assist. So maybe some of your cars have the same. So the, the idea here is you're, you're going down the road. And not that any of you would be distracted, but some people out there are distracted when they're driving. And so if you're veering left or right, this lane keep assist automatically pulls your car back in. So if you're going right, it pulls you back in. So this lane, lane keep assist is, is, is pulling our, our vehicle back to center so that we don't fall off to the right, we don't wander to the left. And I think this is a way that we can guard our hearts. This is an example of how we guard our hearts is, is that lane keep assist, but in, in, in our essence, lane keep assist is truth, and it's the truth of the word. 
So how do we guard our hearts? With truth. Truth is what will keep us on the straight and narrow. Truth will keep us from going right or left. It is our lane keep assist. And as we think about truth, I, I was thinking about just my, my own life and, and thinking back to the Israelites and how they responded. And, and, and you know, I, in all honesty, I've, I've responded the same way. I can complain, I can grumble, I can see God's miraculous saving of myself, his incredible provision for me, and I can complain. And specifically, I can complain about my job. I can grumble about it. I can be discontented with it. And I've had to confess that and, and repent of that. And I've done that with, with truth. And truth that I've looked at, truth that's been spoken to me from my wife, and, and truth that's come from my care group. And so two truths that have really helped me see that falling is that God is sovereign and that God is good and does good. And, and if God is sovereign, and, and he is, and if he is good and does good, and, and he is and does, then I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And this job is exactly what I'm supposed to have. And I should be thankful for that. So how do we guard our hearts? We guard it with truth. And I think we really do that in two ways. Individually, we pursue truth by, by looking hard at the word and by studying it and looking at it daily. And the second way we pursue truth is with one another. We pursue truth with one another. So look back at Hebrews 3. We're going to pick up where we, where we stop there. Look back at Hebrews 3, and we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And it says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me read 13 again. But encourage one another day after day, every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we guard our hearts? We guard them with being people who pursue truth through time spent in the word, and we guard our hearts by encouraging one another with biblical truth. This is the body life. This is why it's so important that we're part of a local body where we can encourage one another. This is why we have care groups. This is why you need to be in a care group so that we can pursue truth on our own and we can encourage one another with that truth day after day. This is critical as we guard our hearts. Lastly this morning, thankfulness. Our last takeaway is, is thankfulness. And obviously, looking back to verse 2, just to be thankful for this privilege this morning, the privilege of worshiping together. I know I take that for granted. Thankful for the word, thankful for instruction and warnings, and thankful for grace and mercy when we fall short. 
And as we think of being thankful, I want, I want to read the following prayer, and this is from the book At the Throne of Grace, which some of you may be familiar with. It's one of MacArthur's books. I think this sums up our thankfulness really well. And it reads like this. We realize that when these psalms were first penned and sung, the redemption they celebrate was understood only through your promise. It was explained through types and shadows with so much of what was to come still veiled in darkness. But now Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, through the atoning work of Christ, we understand the mystery of salvation. That on the cross, he rendered a blood sacrifice to be received by faith, not earned with any merit of our own. For we have no merit. We are fallen, sinful, needy, helpless sinners. With no ability to free ourselves from the bondage of our sin and therefore incapable of earning your favor through any works of our own. But Christ has supplied the righteousness we need. And your word promises that all who call on his name will be saved. We claim that promise by faith filled with profound gratefulness that all your promises in Christ are yea and amen. On this side of the cross, therefore, our praise is enriched, enhanced, and enlarged since it encompasses the great glory of the incarnate Son of God and his mighty work at Calvary. We are greatly blessed to have this full picture and offer you our praise with profound yet humble gratitude. May a song ring from our hearts at all times because of the greatness of the salvation you have given to us and your son. So this morning, as we looked at Psalm 95, let's walk away this morning knowing that he is worthy and he deserves our praise. Let's walk away being committed to guarding our hearts with truth. And let's walk away being thankful. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are a great God and a great king. You are kind and gracious and we are undeserving. And so we thank you. We thank you for your word. And you and you alone, again, are worthy of our praise. So, Father, help us to live in obedience and to worship as we are called to do. Thank you for your grace and mercy when we fall short. We give you praise now. I pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.